What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Recently, I've been engaging in lots of discussions about critical literacy. Critical literacy is defined as the ability to read a text in a way that allows us to achieve a deeper understanding of the concepts of power, inequity, and injustice that that text might convey. The concept of critical literacy requires us to grapple with the issues of social justice that express that all people are of equal value and have equal rights to meet their basic needs, but knowing at the same time that wealth, opportunity, and privilege are not equally distributed in society. In the globally diverse world we live in today, being critically literate is an essential skill that allows us to engage with everyone as part of a civil society. Critical literacy helps us to become active citizens, and for children, it helps them to challenge the status quo as we work to really address the injustices of modern life. For in the end, we want students to be critically literate so they can engage in social change. It's clear here at Rachel's World that we think books are an important part of building all kinds of literacies for children, and the same is true of critical literacy. Books can provide the platform for all kinds of conversations surrounding inequity. Books that explore differences or that address historical or modern inequities of marginalized peoples can help us to explore social issues. While these books are an important part of building critical literacy, they may not be the kinds of books that we are naturally attracted to. So here's a chance for us to get out of our comfort zones and really explore books that express experiences outside of our own. A quick internet search for diverse children's books brings up lots of great resources from experts in the field who can guide you and your kids to great books that will extend everyone's experience. No matter where you come from or where you're going, what your background or family history is, there is always a book out there that can help you experience someone else's perspective. So here at Rachel's World, we suggest that next time you go to check out a book, see if you can find one that accurately reflects the life of someone who is not quite like you. Unsung heroes. There are many. People who do something significant, groundbreaking, history-making, but little is known about them or their deeds. Our first guest on Worlds Awaiting, Charlie Glenn, is singing the praises of one such forgotten hero. Charlie tells of her experience discovering Mary Titcomb, inventor of the bookmobile. Mary's desire to get books into the hands of people far from cities led to her pioneering efforts with her book wagon. Her philosophy? If the people won't come to the books, let's take the books to the people. Charlie Glenn is an award-winning author of adult and children's books. Her picture books include Library on Wheels, Mary Limist, Titcomb, and America's First Bookmobile, Keeping Up with Rue, and Just What Mama Needs, featured on the Emmy Award-winning PBS children's show, Between the Lions. Here's Rachel and Charlie Glenn. We're in studio with Charlie today. Welcome. Thank you so much. We are going to chat today about a very fascinating topic. It fascinates me very deeply as I drove a bookmobile when Mm -hmm. I was in college. 
So it is a wonderful kind of interesting history of the bookmobile and how it came to be that is represented in your new book, Library on Wheels. So let's break it down a little bit. This this didn't happen overnight. It, right. There was lots of steps that went into making the bookmobile what we know it today. Right. So where where did it start? So, yeah, interestingly, I mean, I, I think most people think that libraries have just been around forever. And um, actually, and, and it's true that private libraries have been around for a very long time. You can talk about the Library of Alexandria, right? But um, public lending libraries were a fairly new thing still in America when Mary Lemmis Titcomb was a young girl in the 1800s. And, uh, and it was pretty much limited to New England in the beginning. And um, so Mary Lemmis Titcomb grew up, her family, they were a farming family. They didn't have a lot of money. But she had a remarkable mother in particular who had been raised by an elderly uncle who taught her Greek and Latin and basically gave her, sent her to a private girl's school. And so she had a classical education. Unusual she married for a woman a, that, that very, time. Unusual, very unusual, especially yeah. of that class. Yeah. And she, she married a farmer. And so they didn't have a lot of money, but education was important to the family. In fact, so important that they moved from Farmington to Exeter when Mary's brothers were of age to go to school so that her brothers could attend the Phillips Exeter Academy. And there was also uh, in Exeter newly opened uh, a school for girls. And so uh, Mary and her sister Lydia were able to attend the, the Robinson Female Seminary. So she was well-educated. And when her brothers began leaving home and and establishing careers for themselves, she said later in an interview uh, for a newspaper article that she wanted to do something too. And at that time, really, the only occupations, careers open to women were teaching or nursing. And neither of those really appealed to her. But one day she was reading a bulletin that mentioned something about a brand new career for women, librarianship. And she was a bookworm and she thought she was intrigued and she thought that would be something that she could really uh, do with her life. At that time, there were no formal training programs for librarians at all. Later, Melville Dewey started one, but that was 20 years later. Yeah, much, much later much than Much later, period. right. Yeah. So she moved to Concord, Massachusetts, where her brother George lived and was a, a physician, and she apprenticed herself to uh, a librarian, the head librarian there. And so she worked as an unpaid apprentice, just learning everything she could about uh, you know, acquiring, cataloging, binding, repairing books. And then she was hired um, to be a cataloger at a library in Rutland, Vermont, and she quickly worked her way up to being the head librarian there. And uh, she became known throughout Vermont as a, a an efficient organizer. She would travel around organizing libraries. Well, meanwhile, in um, Hagerstown, Maryland, there was a forward-thinking citizen named Charles Mealy. He had been Harvard-educated, and he felt like um, his not just his town of Hagerstown, but the entire com uh, county, Washington County, Maryland, that they needed a library. And so he went about raising the funds to build a library. And once he, he had the building, uh, he then went to New England to find a librarian to to but they they hadn't even purchased the books for the library. So it was just a building. And so he went to New England and there he found Mary Lemmis Titcomb. 
And so he brought her back to uh, Hagerstown to be the head librarian. The library opened its doors uh, in 1901, and she immediately started um, doing some revolutionary things. The first thing was she set aside an entire room in the library for children. This was one of the first children's rooms in a library in the nation. The very first, I think, was the New York City Public Library. But this was one of the first. And uh, later when she wrote, she was very active in the ALA, served at one point as a a second vice president of the American Library Association. And she often presented papers. And uh, and in one brochure that she wrote where she was offering advice to new librarians, she said, if ever there's a preference to be made, let it be children that you focus on. If you have budgetary constraints, buy books for children. And so she felt really strongly about that. The second thing she did was she started story hours just out in the middle of fields <laughs> in <laughs> in the it. county you know and and children would come i found a wonderful old photograph of one of these story hours there was a little boy there on a pony another on a bicycle and they were just sitting under a tree and the librarian was reading books to children the third thing she did she also made sure that all of the outlying schools had a rotating supply of books from the main library in Hagerstown and not just books but pictures um, that they that the schools could use in educating children well in 1905 she had her most revolutionary idea of all because there were still a lot of people in the commun- in the county that were not you know, coming to the library. So she said famously, if if we if the people won't come to the books, let's take the books to the people. And so she actually came up with it. Not only did she come up with the idea, but she designed America's first bookmobile. They called it a book wagon. It was a horse-drawn carriage. Mary's responsibilities were still as head librarian at the main library. So she didn't drive the bookmobile, although she often went along. But they hired the the library janitor to drive the bookmobile. His name was was Mr. Joshua Thomas, and he was gregarious. He loved people. He was well-known. He knew the roads. He knew the people. He was trusted because there were still a lot of people that were suspicious, not only of Mary, who was a Yankee, right? She was from New England, an outsider. But the, they called it the book contraption. You know, it's like, what is this thing? And there's a hilarious story uh, that uh, when she first designed the book wagon, she wanted it to look very dignified. And so it almost looked too dignified, apparently, because the first time it drove past or drove into uh, one farm, apparently – uh, the story goes that a man came running out saying, no, 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 we don't need the dead wagon here. Nobody's dead. So it looked like a hearse, apparently. So she immediately had the, the door panels and the wheels painted a cheery red. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, um, but it was a success. And it, it tra- and Mr. Tom, oh, one thing I was going to say about Mr. Joshua Thomas, he relished his job. He loved it. And I found in the 1910 census, uh, where he had self-reported his own occupation as being book missionary. That's what oh. he saw himself as, a book missionary. I love that. It's beautiful. Love that. 
this is just so delightful. And I it if this does not entice people to go out and want to read this book, I don't know what will because <laughs> it is just so fascinating to see this real history and, yeah. and bookmobiles developed yes. over the eras and became something that was a staple in many communities yes. for years and years. We've seen a decline in them in we recent have. years, yes. which is unfortunate, but they, they provide such great things for a community. I agree. Yeah. The heyday of the bookmobile was around um, the the 60s and the 70s. There were over 2,000 bookmobiles throughout the nation serving over 50 million uh, rural uh, people. Uh, And now there are almost 700. So that's a huge decline from the 70s. My own bookmobile that brought the universe to me every two weeks uh, is no longer... uh, uh, funded. And so it is sad. And um, and one hope that I have is that maybe this book will help revive the idea a little bit because there's still a tremendous need. Wherever children, people live, uh, where they don't have ready access to books, there is a need for a bookmobile. And as I was researching this book, I found that worldwide, there are in in some countries in South America, for example, they use uh, burros, mules, mm-hmm. to yep. carry books to children. In the Middle East um, and Africa, in some places, they use camels to take books to outlying areas. So I, I'm hoping that there will be a resurgence in, you know, it doesn't have to look like the typical bookmobile that we think about, but uh, there certainly is a need to carry books to people. And to get books to be an integrated part of the yes. community, I think yes. that's one of the one of the lessons I take away from this that it that it isn't just about libraries and buildings; it's about our community yes. and building our community through literacy and engagement with literature and beautiful books and the people that make that possible. And I think right. it's just such a, a heartfelt gorgeous story. So thank you for taking the time to share it with us. Absolutely. And thank if, you. if people want more of those fun stories and tidbits, please the check, check out Library <laughs> on Wheels. It is a marvelous, marvelous piece of history that I think will be engaging to all readers of all ages out there. So thank you so much for joining thank us today. Thank you so much. Charlie Glenn, talking about her new nonfiction picture book for children, Library on Wheels. Mary Lemus Titcomb and America's First Bookmobile. Next, Dr. Mimi Ito chats with Rachel on Worlds Awaiting about connected learning, which is bringing the digital and network world into the classroom. These new tools, like digital games, online communities, and social media, provide the best kind of learning opportunities for kids in all walks of life. Dr. Ito is a cultural anthropologist of technology use specializing in children's and youth's changing relationships to media and communications. She's professor-in-residence and John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Chair in Digital Media and Learning at the University of California. Mimi has co-authored the book, Hanging Out, Messing Around, and Geeking Out, Youth Living and Learning with New Media. Here's Rachel and Dr. Mimi Ito. We are on the phone with Mimi today, who's from the University of California. Welcome, Mimi. Hi, great to be here. Mimi, I am so excited to introduce our listeners today to some of the things that you discuss and study in your research. One of those things you study is called connected learning. So can you describe that for us? What is it? 
in a nutshell, when we talk about connected learning, it's about those learning experiences when kids are doing something that they find genuinely meaningful and interesting, and they're doing it with the support of other peers and mentors who share those interests, and it's also tied to opportunities. So, you know, we find with digital interests, a lot of times kids are, you know, engaged in gaming and fandom and things that are interesting and exciting with their friends, but a lot of times it's not connected to educational opportunity or career or civic engagement. And that's where, you know, building those connections between kids' interests, meeting them where they are, but also making them consequential for education is the heart of what connected learning is. A few details and caveats for connected learning. What we're saying is not that all learning has to be connected learning all the time. I mean, there's definitely times when uh, young people need to learn things they might not be super interested in. But we do believe that all young people uh, deserve to have that uh, experience, that transformative experience, uh, when they're learning something that is both meaningful and consequential for them. Uh, the other um, detail about connected learning that I think is really important is that connected learning itself isn't contingent on technology. Uh, there are tons of connected learning experiences that we've had for a very long time which do not require digital technology, whether that's um, kids pursuing uh, creative interests or athletics or just kids who are genuinely interested in uh, academic experiences of various kinds, that there are many kinds of youth-driven and interest-driven forms of learning that uh, schools and communities have supported without technology. But we do think that uh, today's technology provides new opportunities for young people to be able to connect with others, to create a wide range of things, uh, to uh, get involved in specialized interests that maybe weren't accessible to them before the digital age. And so our historical moment, I think, has unique opportunities. It seems to me that what you've identified here is a gap that really is being filled in some ways by these new approaches for communication and creation in technology. So how do you think connecting those interests that our children have to these new opportunities to communicate and create really helps us take technology or even some of the more traditional connections that you mentioned into a new light and into a new form for our kids to learn in. Yeah, so I think that, you know, this kind of hands-on, learner-centered approach that we've seen in progressive education for, you know, many generations uh, now has been available to kids in privileged backgrounds and families that, you know, really curate their kids' learning experiences. And, uh, you know, I think what's different now, the opportunity space is that, you know, say you're a kid who's interested in a special form of dance or music or a particular kind of literature or, you know, uh, programming at an early age that now you don't have to rely on your school having that offering or your parents being able to afford a specialized tutor or some other uh, kind of specialized camp or enrichment opportunity. But the online world offers so many resources, not only for just, you know, accessing YouTube videos or open online educational resources, but also uh, for connecting to communities of interest in every kind of specialty. I don't think uh, we are necessarily, as educators and parents, necessarily taking advantage of all those opportunities there, but it's clear that the opportunity space has shifted quite dramatically. 
Mimi, I'm interested in that comment that you state that we aren't taking advantage of that, particularly as parents and educators. What do you think we can do? What are some changes we might make to actually do take advantage of this new space that's been created? I think it's um, a really uh, challenging time, uh, but also a time of real opportunity because, you know, our kids today are growing up in a context of absolute abundance of access to social connection, to specialized knowledge, to educational resources, and yet our educational institutions, we're still operating as if we are living in an era of scarcity where, you know, you have to structure learning in certain ways, you have to connect kids to uh, certain kinds of, you know, um, sequences of learning that we call courses and classrooms and things like that in order for kids to get access to this kind of specialized knowledge and education. Um, But in the meantime, you know, kids are just online, you know, they want to learn about something, they Google it on the internet, they watch YouTube videos, and yet, um, you know, most of the time we um, haven't quite adapted how the sequencing and, you know, access to these experiences have been structured. And in fact, um, you know, one of the big findings that we found in our early work, uh, you know, which is now about 10 years ago when uh, young people were first going online and adopting social media in really large numbers, uh, that there was and still continues to be a big generation gap in how uh, adults versus young people view the value of young people's participation in online activity where, you know, young people saw it even back then as a lifeline to information, knowledge, social connection. And, uh, you know, adults tended to see young people's online activity as a waste of time. Uh, there still is a really uh, pervasive perception that um, screen time is bad and that good grown-ups, caring grown-ups, limit their kids' access rather than uh, really engage in those digital activities. I also see that perception very clearly where we see adults saying, oh, this is a negative activity or this is a waste of time or this is just for entertainment. How do you think we can go about, particularly for the older generation, to actually combat those kinds of philosophies and ideas? Or are we just going to have to wait until the digital natives start having children of their own for some of that philosophical (laughs) ideas to change? Yeah, I do think that the culture shift is happening. I think it takes a longer time for sort of our institutions, you know, our formal education to really adapt to these changes. But, you know, even the uh, American Association of Pediatrics, which really pushed the whole uh, screen time rules, you know, only two hours a day, no screens um, uh, for under twos, they changed those guidelines last fall because of, I think, a growing realization that it's not really about the quantity, but it's about the quality of engagement with different kinds of technologies and devices that matters. Uh, and in fact, just time-based rules or the idea that the role of parents is to regulate uh, time on screens is much too blunt an instrument to really uh, be a productive way of guiding kids' digital engagements. I think we need more examples of, you know, educators and parents uh, engaging with kids in their um, digital lives in ways that are not about uh, necessarily limiting and regulating and monitoring, but about, uh, you know, creating things together, about building shared interests and about uh, meeting kids where they are in their interests. 
Mimi, as we close up our conversation today, what would be one of those tips that you would give to parents or families or even teachers to help them start making steps towards that, where it's more of a collaborative thing, where they're working together as families to share their digital lives together? What would be a tip that you would leave us with to help us move in that direction? I think one of the easiest um, and best first steps for parents and educators to take is really uh, just to listen and uh, learn and take an interest in young people's digital engagement, suspending our judgment for a moment about the value of, you know, a game or, you know, whether it's a music fandom or something that um, your kids are interested in. That's really, you know, the best first step. Um, I've learned so much from, you know, my kids and, you know, their online activities and, you know, we've had conversations even around, you know, games that are about war and fighting that a lot of parents might have trouble with about the kind of, um, you know, insight we might have into, you know, issues of conflict, um, some of what my son was doing in his history class that really become, you know, points of intergenerational connection and, you know, potentially places where, um we can start mining uh, kids' digital engagements for the kind of learning that they might be pursuing for school or career, just as, you know, something to do together as a family, just like I think historically parents have talked about television shows or played board games together with their kids. It's really not so different from that. Mimi, thank you so much for opening our eyes to how we can engage more directly with our children's digital lives. We appreciate your time and your insights today. Thank you. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Dr. Mimi Ito discussing connected learning, which brings the technology world into the field of education. We finish up the show today with three authors, Jennifer Nielsen, Whitney Gibbons, and Julie Berry who offer some guidance for youth and adults who want to enter the world of writing. As a writer, why don't you give us just a little bit of a tip or two that you would give to a young person who would like to be a writer one day or who's aspiring to be a writer? What what would you recommend to them? All right, this is my recommendation. In most cases, that young writer has been inspired by a book that they loved. All right, so I'd ask them to get another copy of the book, and they need another copy because this one they're going to destroy. So I want them to take a highlighter and a pen, and I want them to go through that book and highlight everything they loved, a line of dialogue, the way a chapter ends, um, a bit of description. Anything they love, just highlight it. And then go through with the pen and write in the columns why. Why did you love this? Why did this work? Why did that catch your attention? If a young writer were to do that with their favorite book, they would learn more about writing than a dozen books on how to write because it's their favorite. I feel like when people ask artists, like, what is your one piece of advice all the time, artists will just say practice Um, because you can want to be better all you want but if you're not actually they call it getting pencil mileage in art and they call it just getting word count under your belt in writing where if having a sense of perfection and wanting to be perfect in the things that you do is good but it's also really bad because if you never allow yourself to do imperfect things like you just got to write a bunch of crap honestly like I have like every writer 
who is ever successful, they have a stack of manuscripts and a stack of just writing that no one will ever see, (laughs) but they wrote it. And because they wrote that, they were able to write better things later. And so I think just having pride in accumulating and just producing the practice that you need to eventually become a good writer. And if that's not something you enjoy, if you hate, if you just really do not enjoy putting words on the page, maybe a writer isn't best for you. Maybe you're an artist or you're something that is different creative, but you need to have something where you really enjoy the process because it's going to take a lot of process before you have success. I think that aspiring writers of any age need to really focus in on reading a lot and writing a lot. And that's it. It's it's really that simple. You need to consume a large and varied diet of stories. You just need to be a story muncher and uh, just enjoy it. Just let it let it absorb into you. And then you just need to write a lot, all, all that you can. Just have notebooks, fill them up with ideas, silly stuff, poems, story ideas, songs. Don't worry about what it is. Don't worry about what it's trying to be. Don't worry about excellence. Just have fun. And that's the foundation. You know, there are other things we can talk about with uh, editing and, and critique, but that's really secondary. If you are a book muncher and, and a story scribbler, the rest will follow. Three authors, Jennifer Nielsen, Whitney Gibbons, and Julie Berry. We hope some of what they said will spark some new ideas for your own use as a teacher, writer, parent, or mentor. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in weekdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.